You want to open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in 9 through 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. We're going to make our way through the, the remainder of this chapter here. Now, chapter 5 opened up and, and Paul described uh, what was happening there in Corinth. And, and he summarily described it and said, there are things happening in your church that when lost people in your community hear about it, they are flabbergasted. They have no words to describe. They are shocked and dismayed that things like this would go on in a church because they don't even practice such things. And so the, the immorality, the level of sexual immorality had risen to such an egregious level, uh, at least in one case uh, here in this church in Corinth. And so he, be, he began to describe really this, this sense of kind of applying and moving through that unique situation because it was so egregious, because it was so devastating to the body. And so he had to go through and he had to address it in particular. But what we see in 9 through 13 is he begins to kind of fan out and he begins to address kind of sin in the body in general. And so you have to understand that, that sin... Uh, it, kind of out in the world and sin in the body are handled in, in radically different ways. And so Paul here kind of gives us this picture and he says, look, you are a people who live in two worlds. You're a people who uh, the, the vast majority of your time you're living, you're out there and you're in the world. And, and you have to know how to appropriately engage the world. And then there's this other portion of your time, and you live in the church, and you have to know what that looks like. How do you handle, how do you address, how do you live, and how do you appropriately live within the realm of the church? And so what he's going to do is, is show us a picture in some sense of both of those things in 9 through 13, and then we're going to look to make some application uh, for those things to our lives. And so we're going to talk just as long as my voice will hold out, and some of you are saying, let it die, let it die. <laughs> <clears throat> There you go. You may get your wish. Hey, let me read for us 9 through 13, and then we'll, we'll walk through this a bit at a time, okay? Bless you. Paul writes and says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And they're not all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy of the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to not go out of the world. But I'm writing to you that you should not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he weighs in on this. He says, for what have I to, what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he says, purge the evil person from among you. So let's, let's begin to look at this. Just note that the situation that Paul uh, addressed there in Corinth is, is incredible. It's rare. And so when he writes to them and he picks up in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. There are people there that read this and say, you know, we remember when Paul wrote us this, and I can't remember the last time I talked to a sexually immoral person. I just, I, I dropped all of my church friends right then and there. I had, a, I had some cousins that were not church people, and so it was a delight to drop them. I have some in-laws that are not church people. It was a delight to drop them. And, and then I have some other people that it was a little bit more difficult, but he said that I shouldn't associate with people outside the world, and so I just dropped them all right then and there. And that's kind of how they've been applying this. And, and we can, of course, see that they've not been applying it at all to what it's like within the realm of the church. And so Paul offers a word of corrective. Look at what he says here. 
In verse 10, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. And they read that and they say, oy vey, it looks like we interpreted what he said incorrectly. You see, they'd run around divorcing all of their uh, unchristian friends, cutting all of these relationships off, and they'd become so insulated in their understanding that when sin popped up and it reared its ugly head within the realm, they thought, well, at least we're doing what he told us to do. We're having nothing to do with the sexually immoral of this world. Notice the, the whole time, Paul never meant those of this world. And so look at the list he goes on to give, just in case there are those who say, okay, well, if we find other people in the world that, you know, that maybe they're sexually immoral, we can spend time with them, but there are certainly people out there that Paul doesn't, doesn't want to spend any time with, so Paul gives them this list that's common to the first century. He says, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Now, Why? Why can Paul write them and say, look, I never intended for you to divorce your relationship and your engagement with those in the world? Well, he gives us the answer. He says, since then, you would need to go out of the world. In essence, you would need to divorce yourselves entirely from the world. You are Instacarting everything. Like you're having everything delivered and you've paid a Christian friend of yours who's kind of backslidden to go to the door and talk to the delivery person on the chance that they're not a Christian can never be too careful. There's a 20 under the plant. Please leave it and leave. Right? And so this person has completely divorced themselves from any engagement of the world. And this is the, the, the limits we would have to go to, the extent we'd have to go to not to have any association in the world. And some of us find ourselves trying to do this, right? Some of us, and, and some Christians, I think, from, uh, from, from a good perspective, let's just, let's just be generous in this. I mean, they want to pursue the holiness of God. And so in, in seeking to pursue the holiness of God, they've applied the old adage of if you run with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Or if you wrestle with a pig, you're going to get dirty. Or, or any other thing that your grandmother told you that you've just applied willy-nilly to your whole life. And so they've applied this to every function of existence. And so they seek only to work with Christians. They seek only to buy from Christians. They seek never to have their kids inter interact with anybody that's not a Christian. So you can imagine the scenario. I'm walking with my three kids. Somebody walks up and I'm like, let me just stop you at 10 paces. Do you confess Jesus as Savior and Lord? And they say, no. I say, well, then get thee behind me, Satan. Right? I mean, it's just ridiculous. But this is, this is the kind of thing that Paul describes, and this is the kind of way that we find ourselves wanting to move in these insular and increasingly secluded ways. And this cannot be the way that we engage the world. It just can't. It just, it just can't be the way that we engage, but this is the way that they have set themselves up. I only whirl in a Christian bubble. I homeschool my homeschoolers in the most conservative fashion possible. I don't have any friends that aren't in the church. I don't talk to any co-workers that, that, that aren't Christians, and I'm talking Presbyterian or better, <laughs> right? Because you want the concern, never mind. <laughs> and so this is, this is our default. This is our understanding because in some sense, it is easier to operate in the world if we don't have people dragging us down. And this is, this is by and large how many of us uh, function, and this is by and large how many of us see lost people in the world. They're people who can drag us down. I remember over and over again, my dad would, would see some of my friends come over to the house, and he was like, how many piercings does that boy have? I was like, well, I actually got a new one last week. And my dad would say, son, you, you know, those people are going to drag you down. And, and, and I think a lot of us hear that, this idea that they're going to drag us down, or it's easier to, to, 
be pulled down than it is to pull somebody up, right? The old youth camp adage where you have somebody down there and they're pulling and you have this guy trying to pull them up. What's well, never going to happen? The person on the stage always gets pulled down. You can't do that anymore for liability's sakes. <laughs> that and Chubby Bunny, they just, they've gone the way of the dinosaur. But when we begin to apply those things to our engagement of lost people in the world, we lose the effect that we're supposed to have in the world. Christian, you are supposed to be distinctly different, but you are not supposed to be separate and unengaged. Do you get this? God has created you to be distinctly different so that your presence might have real effect on the lives of those you encounter. And, and how in the world are we supposed to do this if you have no non-Christian friends? How in the world are you supposed to do this if you only talk to people that you have some reasonable assurance that they are, in fact, Christians? I would answer and say, you can't. It's ludicrous. It's stupid. You're just wasting your time. Look at what Jesus said. There's all this in and not of business. Well, let's, let's seek some clarity on this. Flip over to John 17. Flip over to John 17. I'm not irritated. This is just how my voice sounds, which is helpful when I begin, begin to be irritated. I can mask it. But then I'm lying, and that's a whole separate sermon. I don't have time for it. Look what he said in John 17. Let me quit digressing. Starting in verse 14, Jesus is praying. It's this wonderful high priestly prayer, and I encourage you to read it uh, later today if you have time. But starting in verse 14, Jesus is praying to God on the behalf of the disciples by extension to us. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Everybody say, not of the world. Look, Jesus says, they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. So what sets them apart? It's the reception and application of God's word to our hearts that leads us forward in salvation. That we boldly declare that Christ is raised from the dead, that he alone is worthy of our worship, and that he alone is, uh, is God, and that he alone can atone for our sins. This is what makes us Christian. Certainly, we can meet people and engage with people in our community that have a higher moral fiber than our own. They are more dedicated. They are kinder than many of you, and that's not saying much. They, are, they give more to the poor. They give more of themselves. They have this voluntaristic spirit. Certainly, those are not the things that qualify which make them to be Christians. It is the reception of Jesus Christ, the confession that we have sinned and fallen short and that we need the forgiveness found solely in Jesus that qualifies us to be distinct and different. Do you understand? They're not of the world. So he goes on, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus has no intention for the Christian that you should live a monastic, secluded, set-apart life of non-engagement. This is not his plan for the disciples. It is not his plan for you. And to some sense, it is not his plan for your children. You cannot insulate your children against the world. You may hope that you can, but when they turn 18, they will be woefully underprepared. They will be blindsided. You are to equip them for engagement in the world. Now I'm getting irritated. He says, I do not ask you to take them out, but you keep them safe from the evil one. They are not of the world. Again, he says it. They're not of the world. They're substantively different. They are distinct. They are unique. And they have a curative at work in, in their hearts that is having effect on everyone they encounter. They are not of the world. 
It's not because they have perfected themselves. It's not because they have made themselves better. It's because Jesus died for them. They believed upon the name of Jesus and have been forgiven of their sins and and granted eternal life spent with the Father forevermore. They are not of the world. They're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' prayer for the disciples, Jesus' prayer for us is that we would breathe, that we would sweat, and that we would eat his words, that every encounter someone has with us, they would pick up on the sense that there is something distinct and different about them, and it's not their body odor. There's something indistinct and different about them And it's not merely that they're kind. There's something distinct and different about them. And the only way that I can articulate it is this thing that they say Jesus has done for them. Because I have no box to put that in. I have no other standing. I have no way of of diminishing that, of watering that down, of making that more palatable, or as a lost person, making that something that I might attain to. Lost person can always be better. They can always be kinder. They can always be more moral. They can always give more to the poor. But they cannot save themselves. It's solely a work of Jesus. Jesus is what makes us distinct. So Jesus' prayer on behalf of the disciples and to us is that they would be sanctified, that God's truth as it's working in our hearts will be making us holy. Do you know what holy people hate? They hate sin. And do you know whose sin holy people hate? their own. They hate their own sin. They're disgusted with their own sin. They're annoyed, bothered, or vexed by the sins of their brothers and sisters in Christ, but they hate their own sin. And do you know what they see when they look out in the world and they see the sins of lost people? Not an opportunity to grow in anger, not an opportunity to demonstrate their animosity, not an opportunity to correct behavior, but they grieve and are broken for the sin of lost people. Why? Because if they remain in their lostness, if they remain, as the Bible says, enslaved to sin, there is no hope, there is no future for them. And so we grieve. We're not angry. I have some lost person walk up to me and tell me that my worldview is oppressive, that it's backwards, that I'm an idiot, and and I just really just need to do myself a favor and take my own life. I'm not angry with them. I'm a little bit shocked because they've been very forward but I'm grieved for them. Not that they fundamentally disagree with my worldview, but I'm grieved with them because they stand apart from God. And I know that God delights in their salvation, not their punishment. And so as a Christian, I should delight in their salvation. As a Christian, I should be extending the gospel. As a Christian, I should be forgiving them. Why? Because they desperately need to see forgiveness modeled because I, and I, I'm one who should readily be able to model it because Christ has modeled it towards me, or rather God has modeled it towards me in the person of Christ. Look what he says in verse 18. Let's wrap this up in John 17. Jesus says, as you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. It's this wonderful understanding that we are not kept apart. We are made distinct by the blood of Jesus, Okay. And we are not of the world, but you're also not kept from the world. And so over and over again, we've had this idea of kind of in and not of, but we, in some real sense, we are certainly not of, but we are sent into. So we're not just merely here. 
to where people can observe us and people can see us. And, and it's like visiting Christians in a zoo. Oh, look at the Christian. Watch him pick his nose. He's so delightful. See the way he engages with his mate. Oh, isn't this spectacular? I don't know why they become British and suddenly we're a zookeeper. <laughs> but as Jesus says in Matthew 5, we're primarily two things. We're salt and we're light. Now, these only work on two levels. Light functions from a great distance. And it pierces all darkness. And so, Christian, the light of the gospel should shine through you in any workplace, in any dark environment where you go, without you ever having to say anything. Simply by the way you behave, the way that you carry yourself, in the quick way you confess your full reliance upon the grace and the goodness of God. People should see the gospel through you. There should be no question of, is so-and-so a believer? Oh, well, that's a hard question. It's Thursday, so no. But they should see the gospel in us. But then on the other hand, salt always requires contact. You know, salt is completely worthless if you don't add it to something, if it doesn't come into contact with something. And we don't get to be salt or light. We are salt and light. So we have to maintain both of these poles of the gospel, that people would see the gospel in us and it would lead them to talk about us behind our backs, right? That people would see the gospel in us and it would lead them to ask questions about us that maybe they're uncomfortable speaking directly to us. But then when we have opportunity to engage with the gospel, that we would go up to Dee and say, hey, my name is Matt, and, and this is who I am, and we are engaging at the level of life with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that the saltiness of the gospel, not the persuasiveness of my speech or my personality, is having fundamental effect on her and is leading her to walk in the lane of the gospel. This is what Jesus has made us to be. This is why Paul said, look, I never intended that you would divorce the world. I never intended that you would have nothing to do with them. Are you kidding me? You are the hope of the nations. You are an ambassador for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You carry it. And each of us has to ask the question of how do we do this? And so it's quite simply an easy step. If you have no Christian friends, then make one. Not in an awkward way. Like, don't go to work tomorrow and say, my pastor told me I had to find a, a non-Christian to be friend with them. I've, I've seen you out drinking and cheating on your wife and all these things, so I assume you're a non-Christian. Can we be friends? That's awkward. That's awkward, right? Don't do that. But the chances are most of us have some non-Christians in our lives. They're in, they're in our workplace. They're in our neighborhoods. Talk to the people and care about them. Engage them. You'd be surprised how many people you find, you just assume they're a Christian because they've never cussed you out, but actually they're living in complete ignorance and indifference to God. But they need the gospel and they need it from you. God has placed you in your neighborhood. He has placed you in your families. He has placed you in your workplace. He has placed you here in this church so that the lost person sitting on the pew beside you can hear the gospel from you at lunch today. Your server has, they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear it from you and they need to see it in you. So that's what it looks like for the world. That's how he calls us to be in the world, not out of the world. That's silly. That's, that doesn't make any sense. So we need to figure out how to divide, how to break down these walls that so many of us have carefully erected and constructed that keep us safe from being sullied and soiled by the world. If you engage the world, it will drag you down. If you engage the world, its habits will have effect on you. The church will functions as a base camp for equipping of when we try and take this summit together. Do you understand? 
And so what we do here together, what we do in community is equipping us for engagement in the world. And so if you spend no time being engaged here, being engaged in the word on your own, and dwelling in community with other Christians, you will crash and burn in the world. It is rare that very many of us can be frontier missionaries with no support for very long. You need a home base. If you're not a member and you're on the fray, you need to join and get plugged in. If this isn't a church for you, find one. Find a group of people who think like you do and who think like you don't so that they will challenge you and so that they will echo what you say at the same time and lean in and serve and struggle with them to make a difference for life and eternity. This is base camp. From here we break out and we go to impact the world. But let's talk about what happens at base camp. Paul writes and picks up in verse 11, he says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. What's he saying? If you bear the name sister, you're fine. No, he's lumping them in together. He, effectively, he says, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you confess the name Jesus and you are a person who is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a swindler, then then." The broad statement that Paul applies to them is have nothing to do with this person. Don't associate with them. This is tough. Why? Because you flip over to chapter 6, and he's going to say, this is exactly who you are, but you've been changed. You've been made new. You've been sanctified. You've been, you've been set apart. You've been made distinct. But there is this repeated call to step back into who I used to be, right? Being a Christian is not being perfect. Being a Christian is not having all of my stuff together. You know what being a Christian is within the community of Christ? It's being able to stand here and say, I'm a hapless nitwit and a complete idiot, and I can repeatedly find myself engaging in sin. Would you walk with me? Would you call me back when you find me being disingenuous to my faith? So notice, this is why Paul is giving such a harsh treatment to the entire church not to associate, have no integral dealings. Have no close fellowship with people who are this. Now, the ESV inserts the word guilty, but a better understanding is to take the same idea and to make it all apart. The person whose very identity is sexual immorality. Because he says a person who is sexually immoral. So there's something, there, there are things that you guys know about me. There are things that you know about who I am. You know, some of you know where I did my undergrad. Some of you know where I did my master's. Some of you know the places I've lived the things I've done. But there are few of you that just really know me, that from a look you can tell, is he angry or is it a rare day that he's happy? Like, and so you just, you just know me. Is he irritated or is he just, you know, what's going on with him? But a person who is these things, everyone recognizes who they are, right? So a person who is, who is by nature and by their existence sexually immoral that if somebody says, oh, oh do, you know, do you know Jim Bob? Oh, the sexually immoral Jim Bob? Or the one that works at Walmart? You're like, no, the sexually immoral Jim Bob that works at Walmart. Oh, no, I don't know him. It's a different guy. And so what he's describing in here is the very character of who they are. Their sin shines brighter than their Savior. Their sin shines brighter than their dependence upon Jesus. And their sin shines brighter than the forgiveness they've received from Jesus. They're walking in the, in the flesh. They're walking according to who they used to be. And so they are known as someone who is sexually immoral. 
They're known as someone who is greedy. Greed is one of these things that that is difficult for us to spot, but it's much easier to spot generosity, right? It's much easier to spot somebody who's just steadily giving stuff away, giving of their time, giving of their finances, giving of their opinion, giving their care, giving their love for those in need. So don't spend your time trying to not be greedy. Spend your time trying to be generous. This is who God has made you. This is who God has created you to be. God generously bestowed the love upon you, the love found in the sacrificial death of Jesus. So we find somebody being greedy in the church. We have this understanding that they're being disingenuous. They're being fake to the covenant relationship with God through Jesus. They're greedily holding on to something. They have a lot and they want more of it. And he says, don't spend any time with this person. Don't, don't, let, this, don't let this be the, the, the type of person that you spend the preponderance of your time with. And he said, an idolater, an idolater. This is, this is incredibly difficult for us because not many of us, brothers and sisters in the church, have shrines in our homes. Uh, our TVs don't count. And so not many of us have these things that we put up on the wall and we look at and give great attention to. But can I tell you that everything in your life wants to have the idol status? Your marriage wants to have idol status. Your kids want to have idol status. Your freedom and autonomy wants to have idol status. And how do you know if it's becoming an idol? Let someone try and take it away from you and see the violent reaction that ensues. You don't think your autonomy, your free will, and your ability to make decisions as a grown person on your own is an idol? Let someone try and tell you what to do and see the militant way in which you react to that. You don't think your kids are creeping in and becoming an idol? Let somebody say something about them. Oh, man, don't you talk about my little ch- uh, idols, my little chidles. <laughs> that is, chiding is not the word I was going for there. Sometimes that works. You'd be chided if you have an idol. A reveler, this person who's just constantly abusive with their words and with their tone. None of us like to spend much time with them, but for some reason we tend to tolerate this person at church. We think God has gifted them with honesty and forthrightness. May they visit you often. <laughs> this idea of a drunkard. You know, in Baptist circles, you know, they always say that if you want to keep your beer safe, always invite two Baptists on a fishing trip. <laughs> But this idea that, that as Baptists, we have created this, this ideology and understanding that, that we have safe people to drink around, right? Like nothing sounds more like alcoholism than finding safe people to drink around. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Let's, let's save that for another time. But this idea that this person who's just known as being a drunkard, and so they're addicted to something, they need help. They need help. And this person, lastly, who's a swindler, they'll take your stuff and they'll take it by force. Now, I want you to understand that when he comes in, he says not to even eat with such a one. This whole thing has been an application to the church at large. The whole thing has been an application to the church at large. It's all been you, plural, application. So he's not turning and saying, hey, uh, Allison, if, if Patty is a drunkard, don't spend any time with Patty, Allison. He's saying, Ridgecrest, this is, this is what you need to do. This is how you engage. This is how you work to be a curative for this person in what ails them in terms of sin. You're, you corporately cannot endorse their lifestyle, but you individually had better be invested in them as the people of God. 
there's a reason and there is a distinction why we see this separation between those things we do corporately as a body and those things we do individually as in, in redemptive veins. So corporately, this person is not eligible to take the Lord's Supper with us. Corporately, this person, if we're having a church-wide event, this person is not welcome there. Why? Because their presence there is an endorsement of their sin. But what do we do as individuals? As individuals, we're going to this person and we're praying for them. As individuals, we're seeking their restoration. As individuals, we are daily pleading for them before the throne of God, using Jesus as an intercessor. Why? Because they are a person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the enemy is winning a battle in them as long as sin is reigning in their members. And can I tell you today that sin longs to reign in the members of every single person in this church. There is not a single person in this church or this community who is saintly enough that sin looks at you and just says, I'm just not happy in their heart. Nah, it's going to find an easier target. Sin wants to rule and to reign in all of our hearts. And each of us as individuals have an opportunity and a responsibility that when we begin to see sin ruling and reigning in the hearts of any other member, we go to them and we engage. Why? Because we love them. And we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not shining through their lives at that moment. And so we labor with them, and we seek to see them restored to the body of Christ. We seek to see them make this entire trip of redemption. But in verse 13, we find that there are, there are those that, 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 that once we go through this with this understanding, that it is not our job to judge those outside the church, that we're, we're judging inside the church, and we're working with them, that there are certain people that you cannot get to relinquish sin. It is a terrific sadness that there are those in our midst, in our community, and in the church universal who would rather be at home with their sin. You go to them and you say, brother, pornography has you. You need to walk away. You're going to lose your family. And they choose pornography over their family. You say, brother, greed has got you. I see it in the way you live. I see it in your lack of generosity. And they say, oh, I'd rather be greedy and have my stuff than have a relationship with the church and a relationship with Jesus. It is devastating that there are people out there, men and women, who are so deluded and enslaved to sin and walking back in the flesh that they would rather choose their sin than choose Jesus. And in those cases... The church has to formally move to rid itself of them. Paul uses this incredibly strong language here. He said, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is tough. It's incredibly tough for a couple of reasons. One, because it just, we just don't see it happen well, right? I think in an ideal scenario... And so Joel is engaged in some egregious sin. And look, listen, I know Joel is not, or to my knowledge, Joel is not engaged. I feel like I'm caveating too much. <laughs> Different person. Uh, Blaba is engaged in this egregious sin. And so I go to this person and I say, it breaks my heart to see that this sin has a hold on your heart. What we want to see happen is that person to be so incredibly broken. And we want to hear this. No one's ever called me on my sin. I didn't realize how big of a deal it is. I'm broken. I'm going to walk away. Would you walk with me? 
That's what we want. More often than not, what we hear are words of defensiveness. It's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anybody else. Words of denial. <sighs> Who told you that? Was it my wife? Did she tell you that? She's a liar. Was it my friend? Did he tell you that? He's a liar. Defensiveness and denial or downplaying. You know, it's just, it's really, you're just making a bigger deal out of this than it is. Very rarely do we see it play out easily. But that does not give us the opportunity not to engage. It doesn't remove the responsibility of us to engage just because it's probably going to go south. And so we go to this person, and Paul gives this beautiful, grace-filled, amazing picture of it in Galatians 6. He says, Brother, if any of you is caught in any transgression, raise your hand if you've been caught in a transgression this week. Are you kidding me? Pat, stick your hand up. Everybody else join Pat. Stick your hand in the air. <laughs> Nobody else has sinned this week? Next week, honesty. <laughs> Let me give you one more shot at this. Anybody sinned this week? There you go. There you go. You got a perfectionist in the back. Methodism is still strong in your heart. <laughs> he says, if any of you is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Listen to this in a spirit of gentleness. You want to have any shot of restoring a brother and sister caught in sin? You have any anger, any animosity in your heart? You are scuttling it before you set foot out the door. Gentleness has to rule and reign in our hearts. Why? Because we're moving forward in the meekness, in the compassion, in the gracious nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You who are spiritual, you who are close to the Lord, you who are pursuing Jesus, you who have fallen and recovered, you who know what it's like to beg and to entreat that God would remove sin from your heart, you who know what it's like to fail and be restored, you who know what it's like to see relationships come back together, you who have tested and seen that the Lord is good, you who are spiritual, restore Build back, bring back, lift up, treat their wounds, restore their heart in a spirit of gentleness. And then he turns and he has this great word to the church in general. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. One of the reasons we have to move to address sin in the body that unaddressed sin in the body is an, is an endorsement of sin by the body. Do you understand that? If we know that a member of this church is stealing from alliance and we don't move forward to address it and everybody in the community, everybody in the church moves forward and they know that this is happening and we don't address it, this isn't us being permissive and gracious. This is us being neglectful and endorsing. One of the whole reasons that we address things corporately as a body is to keep those around us from being tempted so that somebody could stand and we could say, this is, this is so-and-so, and this was their sin, and they have moved through it, and they have been restored. So that the husband, considering cheating on his wife, would look at it and say, I will move forward in faithfulness. God, thank you for the image of redemption in this brother's life so that I don't have to fail on my own. We find somebody that moves forward in sin and gossip and whatever else that they could stand and say, God has been faithful to restore me. 
Can I tell you that the larger we get, the more difficult this gets? Because we want to protect the families of this church. And one of the ways we protect the families of this church is by protecting their reputations. And when somebody sins, we want to keep the circle around that person small so that everybody doesn't know about it, so that they're able to move forward in the grace and repentance of Jesus with, with, with our knowledge and with our help, but so that every, every time somebody sees them in the hall, they don't say, Hello, harlot! <laughs> oh, that's not you. Swindler! Right? It's just awkward, but that's just kind of who we are. And we feel like we wear this banner of our former sin. So we feel like we wear this banner of, of pornographer, adulterer, liar, cheater, swindler, reviler. And that's just human nature. So we want to keep the circle small. We want to move forward in gentleness. We want to love well the people God has entrusted to this body. And then, man, I would just encourage you to lean in and engage and love the people around you because they're hurting. When it comes to the world, we want to show them a gospel that is beautiful, that has redeemed us. That we were lost and we were in sin, and Jesus found us. And as we read about and sang about when we were dead, he said, come out of that grave. When we were in darkness, he turned the light on so that we could see the gospel and respond to it. We have a twofold purpose, to preserve the purity of this body and to work as a curative and a treatment for those outside of it. Amen? Amen. Hey, let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for your goodness and opportunity to worship you, to study your word. God, would you help those in this place, in this body, who are struggling with sin. It longs to have mastery over them, to rule and to reign over them. And so God, we pray that you would help them to stand strong. You would surround them with brothers and sisters who are spiritual that would call them out of that. And God, we pray for those uh, in this hearing or in this room who have yet to submit themselves to Jesus, that today would be the day that they would say, that they would confess their sins to you and they would seek forgiveness, that they would delight to walk in the gospel, to receive the forgiveness of sins, to be made whole. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. and We pray for the efforts of your spirit to help us walk in this truth and in application of it. We submit these things in Christ's name. Amen.